Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the podcast where scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. This episode, the newest addition to pro cycling team performance staff rosters, the sports psychologist. We take a look at what this role entails and also take a look at the details of how a specific type of therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, DBT, applies to sports performance and all athletes. At the 2020 Tour de France, one athlete reached an emotional breaking point and soon took a break from the sport. When the former Grand Tour winner Tom Dumoulin made the announcement of an infinite break, the cycling world was stunned. But the signs were there. Five months earlier, at this moment, of behind-the-scenes footage captured in the Jumbo Visma 2020 Tour de France documentary, Code Yellow. Dumoulin in tears on the team bus something he blamed on saddle sores. I don't think it's a far stretch to say we were witnessing a man who has reached his emotional breaking point. It's heartbreaking. An athlete at the top of the sport was struggling. Sportive director Meryn Zeman talked about Dumoulin's break, saying that he had not answered the life questions he had and he was not enjoying the process. That they brought in help but was still surprised by his decision. From the outside looking in, it may have seemed that Tom walked away because he couldn't handle being a professional cyclist. But this isn't the case. From everything that I have listened to and read, he walked away because the world of cycling made his life unbearable, to the point where joy and self-fulfillment eluded him. Saying things like, quote, you ask yourself, what do you want? Do you still want to be a cyclist? Now I have the feeling that I don't know anymore what to do. Which makes me think, if a Grand Tour winner can be toppled by these thoughts, what does it mean for the rest of us? And even if the issues you've faced with aren't as life-altering as retiring from cycling, what happens when you face something that challenges your performance? Tom is now back performing at the top level, but from time to time we could all use some extra help to deal with our psychological needs. At the very least, to improve our preparation and performance capacity, and also our life in general. And I'm going back to this clip with Tom, because what strikes me about the scene is the two, three, four guys standing around not knowing what to do. I'm not saying they don't care, and sometimes an experienced hand can help, which we will discuss a little later on, but right there in that moment, it would have been so helpful to have a mental health professional talk to Tom. Not to stop him from quitting in that moment, but to also work with him over time to resolve the issues that led him to taking a break from cycling. This is something Cyrus and Shannon Molsey discussed when they were doing the interview for episode 29, and it's worth bringing up here. Not only because how timely their discussion turned out to be, but Cyrus answers the question of why teammates in this role is a bad idea. Was there any staff in the team helping you out with that kind of thing? Or was that all self-driven? Like, 
obviously team staff at the world tour and the women's continental level are really helpful with your training and often with diet and that kind of thing but was there much help with the self-talk side of things to give you that confidence um not not particularly like structured there was no set person that would be like okay this person helps you out with your mental health um but if you ever just found yourself in a conversation where you're like oh I'm really struggling with this there was always someone that you could talk to for sure but it wasn't like a actual um a role there was no one in the team that had a role to help people out with mental health so do you think there was enough people in your team to warrant that being more of a focus for the team? I think that it would be invaluable to have sports psychologists on board with any women's world tour team that they can they can go to because if you're just sort of you know going to that that friend every time that you've got on the team being Australian or American and going to Europe you're away from home so you don't have that support network. So the people that you are around, which are your teammates all the time, they become like your little family, but it's not necessarily the same. So if you've got someone there that's um, that you know you can go to with with any issues that you're having mentally, uh, I think that would be a, a huge help for for anyone really, not just Australians and Americans, for Europeans too. Um, a good point there. Your friends in that situation when you've moved away from home and you're living in that bubble, your friends are your teammates, but your teammates are also in a way who you're fighting against for race starts, for results, because they're sort of your direct competition. It's a strange dynamic where there's many situations I'm sure riders don't want to feel weak in front of their teammates. I think as well, just having someone that's impartial within the team, obviously there's always going to be some some biases there in any kind of sporting sense but if you've got someone there that's a professional and and that's their job and um i think yeah everyone's begun to acknowledge now the importance of sports sucks and how valuable they can be and i think they are it's important to note being adopted more now in world tour teams i have seen a lot more of that well, as it happens, we spoke to the first full-time sports psychologist on a professional cycling team staff roster, Dr. Elisabetta Borgia. Sorry, I have probably butchered that name. But Elisabetta works for Trek Segafredo's men and women's teams. And after she followed the Cycling Performance Club on LinkedIn, we got in touch to talk about her new position. Your position itself is quite new. Yeah. I read that it's one of the first, if not the first full-time position with Trek Segafredo looking after the team. But then also looking at your history, you've been doing a sort of a similar position with the Italian Cycling Federation for a long time, for some six to eight years, something around there. Um, And the other side of that also, you do some clinical psychology in the community as well, outside of sports psychology. So you kind of cover a lot of different things. I've been uh, an external supervisor for women's uh, team of Trek Segafredo in the last two years. And then from now on, I'm officially the team psychologist for both women and men's team. And with the Italian Federation, I was teacher of the research and study center we have in cycling, Italian Cycling Federation. So I teach to the sport directors and all the manager of 
Italian National Federation. So my job changed a little bit from this year on. Finally, uh, I create my personal project that drives to the Paris 2024. One of the big things about your job at Trek is to prevent or mitigate problems for both single riders and working groups. And this is a quote that I read directly from an interview that you did. But even considering the history that you have as a psychologist, you were a rider at one point as well. You grew up doing cyclocross and mountain biking. You were quite successful in junior and under 23s with some national championships. Yeah, I've been uh, a rider too. I've never been like a big champion, but I've always been pretty committed. And I, yeah, I reached good results, nothing too exciting, but uh, yeah, I was a good rider, let's say. And yeah, if I could give uh, any advices to myself in the past as a young young girl, I've never had big issues from a mental point of view. But let's say that uh, I'm what the kind of girl, pretty focused, pretty committed, maybe too much. Let's say that what I try to teach to the riders and I would try to myself when I was younger is that if we would like to have the peak performance, the peak, we need to have the lows. If we want to have the highs, we have to, to reach the bottom. It's part of the game. Everyone would like to be every time in super, let's say, super shape from mental point of view, from physical point of view, and deal with all the variables we have in modern cycling that is about let's say, training, core training, nutrition and positions and wherever. And the risk is every time that we are too much activated and finally our energy uh, is not unlimited. So finally the risk is to burn out. And this is the risk we, we can see in many, many riders nowadays. And so maybe I would tell to myself, my younger myself, that, okay, focus is really important, have a good goal setting and know where you want to go. But there is a big but that means that, okay, you have to find your balance, not too much, not too much focus, not too much committed, not too much every time activated. Otherwise, the risk is really to finish your energy and finally drive the wrong direction. Because maybe sometimes... Is easier add things more than leave something away. But sometimes it's way, way better try to find a balance and say, okay, I have too many variables to deal with. I take this one. I try to look the big picture and not to be obsessed by details. Let's say that is maybe one of the biggest issues I can find now and maybe was my personal issue when I was uh, younger was that, okay, I'm too focused. Every time, full gas, every time, hyper concentrated, all day long. When I'm not on the bike, I think about bike. I look at the others. I look I like the people competing with me. And yeah, it's heavy finally. This sounds suspiciously like pro cyclist Luke Plapp in our last episode, talking about not getting too crazy with the regime so he doesn't burn out. What's interesting to hear is that Elisabetta would also have given herself similar advice, even though her experience as a rider is very different to the pro cyclist's experience over the past 10 years. In fact, find your balance is Elisabetta's catch cry. And balance is a key theme for a good reason. Without it, you might end up somewhere you don't want to be. Take former World Tour cyclist Marcel Kittel, for example. 
Here he is talking on the Roulaire Conversations podcast about the lonely moments of coming home after a grand tour and having to find balance with other parts of life. For me, there are several facts that you have to face. It's, for me, the toughest sport that you can do. Um, there is no other sport where you are three weeks in a grand tour, having your competition four, five, six hours a day. So you need to, to be able to overcome that. When you come home after such a, such a challenge, it's, it can be very quiet at home. You know, there are no spectators anymore that cheer for you. And um, yeah, life is completely different suddenly again. And you need to know what you want for yourself. Why do you do that to, to overcome this, lo this loneliness that is really very often involved? And um, especially when you're 200 days or more a year away from home. It's a question of your own balance, um, that you know where you are, who you are and what you want to really find that balance again in those moments. And if you can't find it, and it happened to me as well, yeah, you will get in a difficult place. And you need to take time to, to think about, you know, what is your answer to the question? What do I want and, 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 and how can I achieve it? Not only as an athlete, because that answer is quite simple and to train, I need to prepare eat healthy but how can I be happy also as a person you know there's there's also a life next to cycling um, which you need to live and um, to enjoy. Pro cyclists these days are faced with new challenges so it's no wonder there's a greater need for sports psychologists and as Marcel mentions it's not just the cycling. Elisabetta has noticed the change in life next to cycling including the flurry of off-bike commitments eating into the energy of the riders she deals with. Cycling and sports in general changed a lot in the last, let's say, years. I, I every time tell the same example that if 10 years ago, when you won a race, maybe a journalist called you to have an interview in uh, in newspaper in, in the monthly newspaper, now you have to be, let's say, in the first row every day just before the race, just after the race. And so uh, they feel more pressure not only from performance point of view but also from let's say social point of view now it's not enough winning you have to be like a character and for youngers it's even worse because they have to be nice if it's possible it's perfect and you have to be happy every day and you have to be strong for sure because otherwise if you are nice and you don't win anymore, you're like, oh, you're not doing a proper professional life. But if you don't do this, you're only a rider. You're only a cyclist and not enough a character. So also the sponsor not that happy and all the stuff. So that means that um, it's not enough winning now. And social pressure is felt a lot by the riders. This extra pressure may come in the form of media and sponsor commitments for professional cyclists, But these are just details. Cyclists and humans at every level have to deal with an ever-changing and stressful world. And this is where sports psychology applies to all cyclists. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here because it's helpful to understand what sports psychology even means in practice. We can define psychology as the study of the human mind, emotions and behaviour. Sports psychology uses these elements to help athletes understand themselves as an athlete. And broadly speaking, each sports psychologist has a style of practice to achieve this. It's their way to integrate scientific revisions and advancements into their therapy. And when it comes down to it, there are two types of approaches a sports psychologist can take. 
And this is actually good news, and I'll explain why in a minute. But the first type of approach focuses on something called mental skills training. Have you ever heard of this? Do you use it? It's pretty common. Mental skills training, also known as psychological skills training, has only been around for elite athletes since the mid-1980s. And as an athlete in a national scholarship program in the 90s, it was all the rage. We did a lot of workshops on mental training, learning about visualization, arousal states, goal setting, etc. And these specific self-control strategies have become synonymous with the general term performance enhancement. And it really seemed like these were the only viable options available to athletes. But around the year 2000, a new type of practitioner and approach was proposed, the clinical sports psychologist, and something called the third wave of behavioral therapy. In some ways, in some ways, this was a response to the overfocus of psychological skills training, which Gardner and Moore, the first to bring up the idea of a clinical sports psychologist, say in their 2015, the Encyclopedia of Clinical Psychology, quote, Years of research and practice stagnation within sports psychology, despite vast development and evolution within the behavioral domain of clinical psychology during the same time frame. The apparent strength of the second approach is that it goes beyond simply working on techniques. It shows people how to live a fulfilling life. That seems a bit wonky in a performance sense, but it does meet our definition of helping athletes understand themselves as an athlete, because it's about the whole person. When Elizabeth starts talking about her style of practice, which she has a unique combination in the world of sports psychology, she starts talking about young riders finding balance in their identity as a cyclist. And the value of this approach starts to unfold. I work with so many different kinds of, of riders that uh, if I can to, to speak about the, the trend I can see is that uh, the, the risk to be too much obsessive about the details is really high. So again, the the topic of being well balanced to find your own balance that is different from the other one. And I use a therapy that is dialectical behavior therapy that is dialectic. That means that we have to take at the same level acceptance and change. That means that we have to accept what we can change, but we have to change what you can change, what is under our controls. That means that, uh, okay, maybe uh, you are not a super champion when you are young. I can tell you my husband, that is an Olympian and won a bronze medal in London of mountain bike, didn't want anything when he was young. But I think it's easier maybe for people who didn't win big races when they are young because they don't know what's the feeling of the win. And it's way worse for people who won a lot when they were young and now they are fighting and struggling to find back that sensation and that feelings and that emotions. Um, I'm kind of interested to dig in a bit more into the DBT style. Yeah. To understand it a bit more. The the stuff that I've read looks at that it was it was developed for addiction and some pretty serious psychological conditions and issues. How do you apply it to sports performance? Well, um, in fact, this kind of therapy I've studied in my clinical field, let's see. As you told before, I've been working in a rehab for addicted people for 10 years. And I can tell you finally, for me, it's it's been a a great pity to leave that world because finally I was a little bit addicted to that world because I love them. 
but I think that my clinical side helped me a lot also in the sports side. That means that during my my job in in, in rehab, we had uh, an important uh, uh, intensive training of two years with the DBT, the Italian Society of DBT, CDBT, that give me many, many advices, many um, reflections about also sport point of view. DBT came from clinical field, especially uh, was uh, invented by Marcia Linean uh, for the treatment of borderline personality disease, so pretty, let's say, uh, rough and uh, heavy disease. But finally, uh, we we understood that the training is okay also for ordinary people. It's about learning few skills. The, the, the one is are called now soft skills that can help everyone to have a satisfied life, let's say. And I'm now DBT skills trainer, and I use these skills with the riders, especially uh, the part about the emotions. Because many times uh, for the riders look at the emotions as enemies. Let's say, oh, I feel too nervous. I feel stressed. I feel anxious. I, I couldn't perform at my best. But um, I try to put in my, my job both theory and practice. That means that I give them the information they need to know more about the self, know more about how they work and if you don't know, you can change anything. I, I'm pretty aware that if I give them the, the instrument to understand themselves, they can now find their own way. Because finally, the strategy that is good for me is not good for you or wherever. That means that I try to help them to be more mindful about how they feel. For example, uh, uh, be able to label the, their emotions. Sometimes they, they are not able to let's say, to describe their emotion. How do you feel? I feel bad. Okay. What means bad? And you go deeper and deeper, and you finally you find the name. DBT was first designed for suicidal and self-harming patients with borderline personality disorder and has been found useful for anyone who is emotionally sensitive with multiple chronic, severe, and difficult-to-treat problems. So how does it fit into sports performance? To me... The strength of a behavioral approach like DBT and other third wave therapies is what it can bring to your whole life, not just the on the bike performance, but working on the whole person. Similar to what Elisabetta mentioned, the training is okay also for ordinary people to learn soft skills that can help everyone have a self-satisfied life. This certainly links up with the message we're starting to see in sports especially when the Mental Health in Elite Athletes statement by the IOC states, quote, Prospective studies have reported that mental health disorders occur in 5% to 35% of elite athletes over a follow-up period of up to 12 months. As a way to introduce you to DBT, we're going to talk about the skills modules involved. Elisabetta mentioned she does a lot of work around emotions. Note that DBT, including DBT skills training, emphasizes the role of difficulties in regulating emotions, and we will see this in the four modules presented. These are listed in the DBT skills training manual, second edition, from Marsha M. Linhan, the developer of DDT, as mindfulness, 
to stress tolerance, emotional regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. Each model builds on top of each other, and the order I'm presenting them in is a recommended schedule in a standard DBT training program. And I also want to quickly say that I'm new to this, and I'm not a psychologist. This is just me as a curious coach working through the modules to explore them more. But don't take my word as the final one. Seek out an expert if you want to use these with your athletes or yourself. I also want to acknowledge the writers that allowed themselves to be vulnerable at some of their worst moments. I respect all writers and mean no harm when I'm breaking down these examples. All right, I'm going to play a clip of American male cyclocross rider Stephen Hyde talking about right before the USA Cycling National Championships in 2018, which he went on to win. You know, last year in Reno, it was like everything about that was a disaster. Like my knee was injured. I couldn't wear like leggings. I had to cut them out because they were like putting pressure on my knee. I was on the West Coast, like nothing was working. I was seeing all these PTs. I had gotten sick before that and I had all this great form coming in. And then I crashed and I like ripped my knee open. Ah, it's just like everything is coming apart. Why can't this just work? And so then it was just like, okay, when you take this like kit off and put your skin suit on with the number on it, you need to be a different person. And like by the time you get off that trainer, you need to be the person that you need to be to win the race and not the person you are right now. Cause that's, this guy right now is like flustered and he's not prepared and he's just like, he's thinking about something else. He's not gonna win anything. Like that guy is letting the failure that just happened like be him. And so you need to stop that and then recalibrate. When you take off this kit and put on your skin suit with the number on it, you need to be a different person. So the first module of DBT is mindfulness. Mindfulness skills help us focus attention on the present moment, noticing both what's going on within ourselves and what's going on outside of ourselves, and become and stay centered. I think Stephen is displaying mindfulness in the way that he stops himself from not being in the present moment and changes his mindset to match the occasion. Also, you can get an idea of why mindfulness skills are central to DBT and one of the first taught as they underpin and support all of the other DBT skills. Because in this case, without the awareness and then the shift to the present, it seems Hyde might have beaten himself before even turning a pedal in a race. It seems to me that becoming mindful can help athletes learn how to observe and experience reality as it is, to be less judgmental and to live in the moment with effectiveness, like Stephen Hyde, or even in day-to-day life. Related to mindfulness, but also important to DBT as a whole, is the concept of three primary states of mind, presented as reasonable mind, emotion mind, and wise mind. A person is in reasonable mind when he or she is approaching knowledge intellectually, decisions and actions are controlled by logic. The person is in emotion mind when thinking and behavior are controlled primarily by current emotional states. Wise mind is the synthesis of emotion mind and reasonable mind. It also goes beyond them. Wise mind is the inner wisdom that each person has. It adds intuitive knowing to emotional experiencing and logical analysis. Mindfulness skills are the vehicles for balancing emotion mind and reasonable mind. Moving on, we get to distress tolerance. Distress tolerance is the ability to tolerate and survive crisis situations without making things worse. 
Also, these skills teach us how to accept an outcome that may not be what we hoped for or want. The skills here enable athletes to tolerate painful events, urges, and emotions when they cannot make things better right away. Outside of sports, this skill within DBT is about tolerating and surviving crises, which is a little heavy for us. But there are certainly situations in cycling where learning the art of acceptance and change is useful. And a critical element of learning acceptance is first to grasp the idea of radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is one of the standout elements of DBT for me and is also one of the main differences between traditional models of sports psychology that suggest the optimal internal states are necessary for performance. I can't find much evidence around this, but the idea is that mindfulness and acceptance-based models may be best for optimal performance. We kind of get into this a little bit when we're talking about emotions. And like I mentioned to Elisabetta, this is something, it was quite new to me, and it goes against traditional mental skills training because it is accepting that there are many things happening and if you, you, if you accept them rather than try to ignore them, push them away or deal with them in a different way. I'm interested how this kind of fits into some specific performance types of scenarios. Yeah, sure. I think that a good percentage of the strategy we use is about change. So it's about problem solving. So we have an issue, we have a problem or we have a goal and we have to find a way to reach it. But I think that every rider need to know about the career, sports career, but especially in life, that we can't avoid pain. Sometimes what we can't change, we have to accept. For example, I have my uh, favorite race in one week and I'm ill. Okay, we can try to uh, recover and doing the proper step in order to recover as fast as we can. But finally, we have to accept we are ill. And it is how it is. For sure, it's not the, the perfect life of the perfect moment we would like to have. But what can we do? The best thing is accept. It is not like, okay, I take in a passive way what's happening. But it's like, uh, okay, I choose to accept what's happening. And acceptance is the first step to put us in the right mood then to trying to change something. Okay, I accept to be ill. I accept it. And now, together, we try to find the strategy to recover as fast as we can. That means maybe recovery more. Because when after injury or after illness, every rider would like to, okay, I go back on the bike and I try to recover and do double trainings. and But it's not the right strategy. And I think that for example, my job, my position is, again, a reliable person who can give you advice. Okay, I know your urge is to go straight on the bike and do your job as much as you can. But now the best thing is recover, is skip another race, have a, a different training load. And it's like an external wise mind that can help riders when are in the emotional mind and in order to to avoid maybe more issues or more mistakes but yeah acceptance uh, uh, for for a rider is easier to give them not the solution but something to do in order to change 
but sometimes we can only accept what we can change. And I think it's really important they start thinking about this. Elisabetta mentions this idea of an external wise mind that can help writers when they are in the emotion mind. The idea of having someone around using their inner wisdom to deal with issues when the athlete is in an emotional state, that's kind of the crux of Elisabetta's role on the ground. Of course, in an ideal scenario, the athlete has trained the ability to understand themselves so they themselves can use their wise mind and make better decisions. But even at the top level, athletes struggle to do this. So having someone there to help is a valuable job. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, this can sometimes fall on experienced staff members. I have a clip that has all of these elements. I'm going to play the clip first and afterwards talk us through it. To set up the clip, it's round two of the Women's Cross Country Olympic at Novomesto in the Czech Republic on May 16 of 2021. And it's US mountain bike rider Kate Courtney and Kate is having a good race until a crash shakes her and damages her brake lever having to stop in the pits to get it fixed. There you can see the uh, brake lever pointing forward. Yeah, there's a spring inside. That looks pretty destroyed. And she had a really good start. She was on the third position when this happened. And they've got the brake lever off, so they're going to have to put a new whole master cylinder on there. Poor Kate. It's about having the team around you. First, she told me today when I was standing there, like holding my bruises and waiting for my brake lever to get changed that I had to find a way to finish. And that was absolutely the right thing to do. For me, that's like not how I want to feel today. Like I'm like over it. Like that was so hard, but that's like what motivates great athletes. And I think um, for me, like I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend three days being really sad and petting my dog. (laughs) And then I'm going to go back to work. Before we talk directly about this clip, to understand radical acceptance better in DBT, the key word is dialectical. Dialectical means duality, suggesting a balance between contradicting forces. And as Marsha M. Linehan writes in the DBT Skills Training Manual, quote, the overarching strategy in DBT is the emphasis on dialectics at every turn in treatment. Core DBT strategies are designed in pairs representing acceptance on one hand and change on the other. In this case, the dialectical nature of this type of therapy is to survive the immediate issue without making things worse and to accept reality when we can't change it and it's not what we want it to be. But back to Kate. There are two distinct parts in this clip I want to talk about. The first is during the race and the second is after the race. And what we actually hear her saying in the first part, talking about what was going through her mind during the race when she's waiting in the pits for her bike to be fixed. We hear her emotion mind. For me, that's like not how I want to feel today. Like I'm like over it. Like that was so hard. Her thinking and behavior are controlled primarily by her emotional state at that moment. But like she says, It's about having the team around you. And in this case, the external wise mind is her team's owner, Frischi, Thomas Frischnecht. And for some context, Kate has struggled to get results in the previous two seasons after in her first and second season, she won the World Championship and then the World Cup Series. So it's Frischnecht that uses his intuitive knowing and logical analysis, telling her to find a way to finish. 
As a team owner, I'd say this shows a good grasp of wise mind in this situation. But for Kate, and maybe you've experienced this, this would be an area to work on with a sports psychologist. Practicing something like the STOP skill that helps individuals refrain from impulse actions. STOP is a mnemonic for the following steps. Stop, take a step back, observe, and proceed mindfully. Kate does a better job in the second part, accepting the result of the crash and the race, which considering this clip was recorded on the day of the race, so it's still fresh, but saying, I'm going to go home and I'm going to spend three days being really sad and petting my dog. (laughs) And then I'm going to go back to work. Allowing herself to accept the reality of what's happened in a non-judgmental way, not forcing a different response and in the process, reducing the pain and giving herself the possibility of moving forward. Coming up, the last two modules and an insight into how Elisabetta works with athletes and the team. I just want to take a quick break here to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and remind you that if you find value in the show, it would mean a lot to us if you shared our content with other cycling performance enthusiasts in your life. Also, if you are seeking some additional guidance in the world of cycling performance beyond what we deliver in the podcast, we're keen to help you. My co-host and I offer coaching services for cyclists and consulting services for cycling coaches and teams. Our objective is to provide support tailored to your specific goals and increase the level of confidence you have in your cycling performance results. So definitely check us out online and contact us with any inquiries you may have. Links to each of our websites can be found in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back to the Cycling Performance Club. In the last show, we talked to professional cyclist Luke Platt, Olympic bronze medalist on the track, current Australian road champion and Ineos Grenadiers rider, about his transition from a successful track cyclist to racing on the road at world tour level. And contrary to what you might initially think, his transition between these two roles was much more complicated than simply adding more base to his training schedule. Luke has moved across the world to a new climate, from one high-performance environment to another, experienced the largest week's training load of his life, and found new limits to surpass in his own performance abilities. Find out how he tackled these challenges in his stride and came out swinging on the other side. That episode's up now. Check it out wherever you got this one. Okay, back to DBT. The next module is emotional regulation. Emotional regulation includes enhancing control of emotions. Even though complete emotional control cannot be achieved, it's more if you can get more control, perhaps you can learn to modulate some emotions. And this is where we get to an understanding and naming emotions so we can change emotional responses, hopefully reducing vulnerability to emotion mind in the process. In this clip, U.S. cyclocross rider Katie Keogh is talking about coming home to the U.S. after the first race of the season in Europe, where she had planned on staying for the entire season. That, I think, was the hardest decision I've ever had to make because it's just, that was like, again, I we committed to being over there for the whole season, and now I was not going to finish that. And I've never not finished anything I've started. I've, it was weird. I felt so many emotions too coming home. Like the first, the first couple days, the first week, I felt so much guilt because like so many people committed to this moving to Europe thing and doing it, and like then I wasn't seeing it through. 
Then I felt stressed and anxious about it because I was, I, I was like missing out. I felt like I was missing out. And then all of a sudden I just felt like calm and at peace and like happy, <laughs> you know, just like a big weight off of my shoulders kind of thing. What strikes me about this clip is that Katie is able to name the emotions she was experiencing and then seems to manage the difficult ones, guilt, stress, anxiety, to eventually get to a calm, peaceful and happy place. Katie then goes on to say this. When I sit and think on it, I'm just like, this feels like a big turning point or a big learning experience or something big that I never even had the idea in my head that something like this would happen. And when I come out from the other end of this, I'm going to look back and be like, yep, that was a big part of my life where that needed to happen to get to where I am right now. Like, however many years down the road that is. I don't know if that sounds too hippie, but, like, whatever messages the universe is, like, trying to tell you. And I feel like I've been feeling these messages for a long time, but I haven't listened. So, and, and once I did listen, it was just, like, I felt relief. The first thing that comes to my mind when I think of this is that this sounds like wise mind. And many of us go through these kinds of different emotions during big moments. And knowing a bit about Katie, as she's been very open about her mental struggles, she does the work, practicing how to regulate her emotions better. So this is an amazing outcome and a quick turnaround from what might have turned into months of distress. There's one last module of DBT that I want to place on the table, and it's interpersonal effectiveness. Interpersonal effectiveness skills help us maintain and improve relationships both with people we are close to and with strangers. The core interpersonal effectiveness skills teach us how to deal with conflict situations, to get what we want and need, and to say no to unwanted requests and demands. All of this is a way that maintains our self-respect and others' liking and respect for us. I don't have a specific example for this one, but in a performance sense, this becomes more important as you need more and more people to be successful in cycling, from a partner to a coach, and then all the way up to teammates and team managers. There are many relationships to navigate, and all of them have a bearing on an athlete's performance. Elizabetta will talk about this part of her role in a moment, but now that we've gone through the four modules of DBT treatment, let's get into how Elizabetta works. And the good news is that we can all use this advice. And in this example, we start with emotions, and before we can regulate them, we need to understand them. Understand what emotions can do for us. For example, if, I, if they speak to me about anxiety, I start to explain to them that anxiety is one of the oldest emotions we, the human being start feeling. And they can save our life because if we don't are anxious or we don't have fear to put ourselves on the th- from the third floor, we, we won't be there anymore. Or if the primitive man didn't have fear of beasts, they go straight to them and without escaping, for example. So we need it. It's a state of alert. It's a state of um, let's say uh, of readiness that. We need to perform at our best. We need this arousal. But if we have too much activated, so it means if we feel anxious and we feel that is 
a way that can handle our performance is a problem, but we need it. It's like if we are not enough activated or if we are too much activated, our performance goes down. But we need is like uh, there was a law that connect performance and activation, and it's like uh, a U that means that we, if you are too much activated or not enough activated, we can't reach our peak performance. We need to find a balance in the middle, but that middle is different from me to you. There are high sensation seeker riders who need to feel, let's say, increase and accelerated heart rate, to feel uh, rapid breathing, to feel uh, more contracted muscular district. They feel it, and okay, I'm ready, I can do it. Other kind of riders, if they have, a, they have the same sensation, they feel, oh, I'm too anxious. So we have to be aware about our sensations, to be aware about what we are feeling in order to understand how to change something. Okay, I feel I don't sleep in the night before the race. It's a problem. Sure, it's a problem. It's a big problem because otherwise you wake up in the morning of the race and you are already tired. It means you are quite too anxious because you are in alert and you can't sleep anymore or you can't sleep properly. We have to work together in order to find the right strategies, the strat- your strategies to be less activated and maybe create a routine just before the race to be activated in the right way, for example. Identifying and regulating emotions is about understanding what is the best level of emotions for each individual rider to perform at their best. Besides the skills in DBT, this takes ongoing management of the rider's emotional well-being. Another part of this emotional management for performance is confidence. Sure, confidence is an essential part for every rider. That means that, uh, again, the dialectics came again in my method. That means that we have to keep together our weaknesses that are turning, let's say, improvement goals. And at the same time, we have to, to keep in mind our strengths. Otherwise, we are too much unbalanced on one side and our self-esteem, our self-image goes lower. That means that many riders, also many strong riders, when I ask them, okay, try to outline your strengths, they start maybe to give a note about the first strengths and then <laughs> they go to their weak point. Well, I'm pretty strong in this, but okay, I'm not strong in that. And that, okay, I ask, just ask you which are your strengths, not your weak points. We have to keep all together. Okay, be aware about our strengths and put them in the races because our mind can proceed only one info per at time. That means if we fool, let's say, our mind of good information, we can't be uh, think about the, the poor ones. At the same time, we have to be aware where we are in order to, uh, and our weaknesses, our weak points, in order to have a goal setting and find a way to, to better and to improve. But yeah, sure, confidence is, is essential because it's not how much we are strong in reality, but how much we feel strong. And this is the, the bug in the system. That means there are many strong riders that don't feel strong enough. And this is a, an element on which we can work and can give big effects on the performance. And surely uh, self-efficacy and confidence is about 
the experiences we had in life and education maybe we had also in the first years of our our life the experiences we had for sure if we won last week for sure we go pretty confident on the next race but it's also on the opposite side so that means if if we had a bad race the week before and we don't feel in shape it's really difficult we go on the next the upcoming race super committed super confident and super uh, super strong and also an element can help a lot the confidence of rider confidence is the feedback we give them so the, the environment in which they are in so this is another part of my job that means to speak and to talk with the ds to talk with all the staff in order to create a positive system that doesn't mean that you have to let's say cheer even if things are not going well it doesn't mean this but it means that validation is something that every one of us needs that means that we have to take care about this part we have to communicate in the properly i do for example a few meetings with the ds in order to be more uh, effective communicators to for example to have validation to do the pre-race meeting in the proper way in the more effective way or the debriefing after the race in order to look at the good points but also what went wrong and in order to, to better the, the upcoming race well i mean I, my job is let's say 360 degrees in the team that means with riders but also with mechanics swiners staff management because uh, let's say that uh, a, a good system that means uh, an healthy system give the possibility to every member of the system to work in the best of the ways and also if we have in the, in the system for example a mechanic who is angry and frustrated because he is abroad from home 200 days per, per year is enough to create a bad atmosphere and also affect finally the performance of the riders so they are important as the riders as the management and we have to take care about every level of the system in other words confidence is also about the environment because the most effective sports psychology and mental performance targets both the individual and the environment this is why elizabetta supports both riders and the team staff part of this support is giving feedback which seems to be a large part of Elizabeth's role. This makes sense as it's a qualitative measure and an important one at that. And so is building the trust with the rider, so they give feedback as well. In a practical sense, that means almost constant monitoring of the riders, and this is why she works directly within the training software, because if things aren't going right in training, then it can quickly erode the rider's confidence in their own performance and trust in their coach and team. Another part I think is essential, and this is the feedback they give them. Yeah, training speaks is perfect. Every coach can go in and look at the files and do all the measurement they need. But I really support riders who they give some notes that describe how they feel, because um, there is also a, a different rating about how hard was the training beyond the description of training so maybe today is only three hours without any efforts but i felt that is from in the scale in the rating a super high rate that means that maybe it's the start of something and again it's important to create a good relation with the riders 
and they have to feel free to give their feedback as they are without feel judged or something like this. I every time told them, speak, please. You don't agree about the training you are doing. Okay, for sure, coach knows better than you, but he can explain why. There is a reason, there is a meaning for which today you're going to do this. And this really, really important because what I saw in the past and also now is that when things are not going smooth anymore, the first issue the rider starts having is that they lose the trust to their the coaches and they start to look on the right and left what the other are doing. And then you lose completely the path because then you don't know why the others are doing this kind of stuff and you don't know what they did before and what which are their goals. And it's really, really important to keep in touch, to keep updated and to have, let's say, not daily, but if there is any issues of something going outside the um, ordinary delta, it's like, okay, take the phone and call him and explain this because it's the only way to, not to prevent, but to try to understand in time what's happening. What type of things are we trying to prevent here? Things like burnout, mental, emotional, and physical exhaustion that can come from many different areas off the bike, as we've discussed, but also on the bike in the form of overtraining. This is one reason Tom Dumoulin cited for his break from cycling, because overtraining is about more than just the body and numbers, as Elisabetta explains. Uh, for sure, overreaching and overtraining is something that goes on, is not like an off-on it's not like this. It's like, okay, first day and second day and third day and fourth day. That means that something went wrong and we, we didn't manage and we didn't handle the situation in the proper way. So if we can speak about mistakes, it's a mistake about the rider, but not only about the rider. As much as you go higher in professionality, as much is easier that the overreaching or overtraining syndrome is about more mental part that, and emotional part than really properly physiological one. Because let's say that we have more or less everything under control. We can see the reaction, physiological reaction after every training. So I think it's way more about the attitude, the mood, emotional point of view, surely. Motivation. Motivation is one of the, the essential part we have to look at when we have an overtraining syndrome or overreaching syndrome. So how do you feel? Are you motivated? Do you feel fine to, to reach your goal? Do you feel pleasant? Really, your goal, do you feel like goal? So is, let's say, the the gasoline for your commitment, do you feel committed to, to that goal? So sometimes it's about they don't feel enough motivated and they start being passive. And when you feel passive, then you start doing your training not that way. And you try to find the confirmation about you don't feel well during trainings and so the number goes straight on your mood and so the number goes straight to your mood oof i felt that one before felt that failure felt that pressure of not performing how i want not being the athlete i want to be in these moments where emotion can be seen as the enemy having an external wise mind ideally a sports psychologist to guide my emotions thoughts and behaviors with skills and information, so I can learn more about myself and the way I work, that would have been invaluable. Because it all relates to performance. After all, all we are 
emotions, we are thoughts, and we are behaviors, actions, and we are connected. Elisabetta, thank you for joining us and sharing your insights. I hope we've done the topic of DBT and your role at Trek Segafredo Justice. Dr. Elisabetta Borgia is a sports psychologist for Trek Segafredo and coordinator of mental support for the Italian Cycling Federation. Next week, we talk to one of cycling's premier practicing sports scientists. And while you wait for that one, check out our last show with Luke Plapp, Olympic bronze medalist on the track, current Australian road race champion and Ineos Grenadiers rider about his transition from a successful track cyclist to racing on the road at world tour level. It's up now where you got this one. Also, please make sure you subscribe or follow this podcast in whatever app you use. You can subscribe right now. There is going to be a button in the app. It's probably a heart or it says follow or subscribe. It's there somewhere. Go ahead, click it right now while you're listening, please, and thank you.